Clayshaw Trial, The Grand Jury Testimony. He has quite a few links and a lot of information here on Clayshaw, the trial. So first of all, Michael, thanks for taking time to talk to me today on Black Op Radio. Thank you, Len. I'm glad to, glad to be here. Uh, let me just correct you and just say that my website is called jfk.boards.net. Yes, I see JFK that now Boards. at the top. Sure, Yeah. sure. Yeah, and uh, um, yeah, so I've been a part of the assassination, well, studying the assassination really on and off since I was 15 years old, and I'm 65 years old. I started in 1973. Uh, this is the year, unconsciously, Lenny, I, I said to myself, I want to take a look at this thing while we still have time. It was only 10 years old at the time, and I would go to the library and read the Warren Commission report and study, you know, started, started my uh, uh, studies on it, and it's just it's been a fascinating thing all my life. I've been in and out of it, uh, and I came upon this. Uh, this has been out for a while. These uh, grand jury uh, testimonies from the Clayshaw trial have been out for a while, uh, and I did transcribe them uh, for everyone to have and read and see. Okay, before we get into the grand jury testimony and Clayshaw, what was it about the assassination that caught your interest? My father's sister, my Aunt Rosemary, would tell me when I was very little, don't believe it. Don't believe what they're telling you. Um, she loved John Kennedy, and she seemed to know that there was something wrong with it all. And I was fascinated. The first people that fascinated me were uh, Jim Garrison and Mark Lane, and especially when I saw something about either one of them on television. Even as a kid, uh, I was just fascinated and compelled to that. Uh, the... the what I find fascinating is, is all the things that are wrong with it, Len. You know, uh, that's really the key to the conspiracy, uh, that it doesn't add up, that it doesn't make any sense. Well, was there one thing that, that caught your attention? I usually tell people, for me, it was Commission Exhibit 399. When I saw the bullet, I, well, wait a minute. There's no way this uh, bullet. Yeah. So what was it? Probably, I, I like asking people. What, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, what comes to mind immediately is the Mauser. And I'm very young, you know, I'm like 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and I hear this story about this Mauser and how this, this other gun now has disappeared. You know what I mean? That sparked my interest. And because there were, you know, people saying, yeah, there's a Mauser, you know. And even when I get older and I think about that Mauser, 
there's still something wrong with it, Len. It's still not quite completely resolved because there's that 7.65. You know, they talk about Mauser being a, a kind of a gun, a, a name for a bolt-action rifle. But 7.65, th- those guys know they're looking for a 6.5 shell. That's what they found. And they know they're looking for a 6.5 gun. To go back to their office and write 7.65 on five different reports over three days, there's something wrong with that, something really, really wrong with that. Yeah, that's in, so, uh, it's a good point, and and that's interesting. And people that I interview, they always have something different. So it's, yeah, uh, it, that's uh, yeah. Because well, there's so many yeah. things wrong, like you mentioned. You know, different people it just hits them, and um, that's what I like asking that question to people to see what caught their interest. Because usually yeah. it is something wrong. There's something wrong about what the government was telling us. Yeah, completely. And then as the internet came along, as I got much older. And I started to read testimony because I never really did that in my studies in the early days. I read a lot of the uh, Harold Weisberg. I found him fascinating. And Jim Mars, I found that fascinating as well. But then when I started reading the Warren Commission testimony because of Weisberg, because he would point me to where to read, and it was easy for me to get to it on the Internet because I didn't have the 26 volumes. So when I was doing that, then you realize how the, how the commission steered it and pigeonholed into the Oswald narrative, you know, into the one gunman theory. And it's, that's real, you know what I mean? When, when Zabruder's on the stand and he says to them, you know, the Secret Service told me that there's no way that one man could do this in the amount of frames. And they dismissed him. They said, thank you, Mr. Zabruder, for bringing your film. You've been a great help to the commission. So there's things like that. It's just so obvious. They don't ask the right question or they, they don't call the right person. And that went on throughout the whole process. So by doing that, and then I discovered these grand jury testimonies. I knew they'd been around for a while. I guess from the 90s, I read the history of them, that they were going to be destroyed, uh, and they did get saved. And, and then here they are, and then they're on the Internet. But they're in an awful PDF format. It was very difficult for people to uh, access easily or quickly. So I wanted to put it into a place where people could get to it and, and understand it and introduce each of the characters. It's about 48 different witnesses, I think, or different testimonies from different individuals out of New Orleans. And I found it fascinating because you're looking at, gosh, uh, we can go through now some of this now if you want. There's uh, Thomas, yeah, Thomas Beckham, who was a friend of Jack Martin, worked for Guy Bannister. He's talking about doing work for the CIA. He takes the fifth. When he has to answer that question, when he gets caught in the headlights because they, they ask him that, how uh, he did work for the CIA, and he really slipped. And he said, yeah, he did. And then they asked him some more questions about it. He said, oh, I take the fifth. <laughs> There's those things that are going on throughout this process. There's not a whole lot of heavy stuff that comes out of it, but there's, there's little things. We're getting fragments now, Len, you know, in this time. It's, a lot has been scrubbed. A lot has been cleaned and washed. Well, specifically, let's talk about the, this uh, testimony. In the Clay Shaw trial, was there something about that that uh, caught your interest as well? I mean, because you decided to go through it, and you mentioned that the PDF format was maybe hard to read or dirty, so you decided to, to, to redo it. But what was it about it that, 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 you know, because a lot of people, they'll have yeah. an interest and they won't write a book or they won't do what you were doing. They're, they'll just kind of go through it but something sounds like you wanted to level yeah. the field and let other people know what's... Yeah, I would say the first thing that caught my interest in the grand jury testimony, is that what you mean? I would say Bill Gervich, who's the, the former investigator, excuse me, that worked for Garrison, 
he turned against Garrison. And if you watch the JFK film, he's that guy who's, you know, who's going against it. The FBI really drags him away from it. And he threatened to bring to the grand jury all these stories or all these actual proof, he said, of uh, the grand jury uh, bribery, uh, witness tampering, uh, witness, uh, um, what's, what's the word I want to say, uh, bullying, uh, drugging. And none of it was true. He brought none of it. He had really two opportunities to, to do it, to bring it to the grand jury. The grand jury was very frustrated. You have brought us nothing, you know. And I, I found that. I read that first. And I was like, wow, there could be a lot more in here. There could be a lot of other things in here. I think that was one of the most interesting. Thomas Beckham, like I said, that con man with the CIA who worked, CIA work, who suddenly completed the fifth. There's a Marine, John Heindel, who was supposed to have taken, the, you know, uh, what do you call it? Oswald is supposed to have taken the name Alec Heindel from this guy, John Heindel. And it's said that he had spoken Russian when he was in the Marines serving with Oswald. But he, he's on the stand. He said, no, I never spoke Russian in my life. <laughs> I only knew Oswald in a couple of uh, meetings, a couple of contacts with him. I had no friendship with him. I don't know where all this is coming from. So, you know, there's those kinds of things. Like it's little things, but again, things that are wrong. You know, things that don't make sense, that just don't add up. And uh, I find it fascinating. I really have for, for 50 years now as I watch this case. And it still goes on. Right now, do you have, um, looks like there's quite a few people in the, in the testimony, in the transcripts. Uh, how many do you have? Do you know exactly? Looks like uh, over 50? I think there's like 48. Okay. On the jfkboards.net, the threads are here. You can click on it. There's... A little photo to let you know kind of what you're looking at and the different people, for instance, like Dean Andrews and um, just, you know, Perry Russo. There's so many. Leighton Martins. And I'm just scrolling yeah, through them just, all here. Yeah. Harold Weisberg. And, yeah, because I, I wanted to introduce the reader to that individual, how they fit in the story and where they are. Harold Weisberg is one of the most fascinating ones as he talks about the, the bullets and the fragments that are left, and that more more bullet fragment was left in, Gover in Governor Connolly than the bullet can carry, and he has proof of that with a, a, um, a scientist that he worked with, and he brought that to the grand jury. There's those those kinds of things I find fascinating as well. Uh, Raymond Marcus is another one who talks about the magic bullet. He wrote so much about the bastard bullet, and who else? Well, Ruth Payne, she's there. She's kind of fascinating. She's kind of dodging questions and 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 uh, what do you call uh, dancing around, so to speak. And Marina Oswald, she admits uh, or says to the grand jury that she was told by the Secret Service that uh, Mrs. Payne is a CIA, sympathy with the CIA. So there's all those kinds of like I say, little things. There's nothing that really nails anything down, you know what I mean? But you'll learn a little more about what went on in New Orleans. You'll learn a bit, a bit more about how the grand jury uh, had to deal with the public and the people, the scrutiny that it was going through as people came to them and said, you know, this is all fraud. This is all fraud. He's, Garrison's a fraud and so forth. And it's, again, I've always been fascinated with since I was a kid. It's just amazing. Well, what I appreciate about this is that as you go through this, you really come to the conclusion that Lee Oswald was not behind this. Like, as yeah. you say, there's small little pieces here and there, and it doesn't formerly, you can't really say we have solved this and for instance mm -hmm. alan dulles ordered this and his henchmen it's just right. no some things are are still going to be foggy or you know just nothing in paper 
but you can draw yeah. your conclusions that the official story is wrong. And, and yeah. you can go through and say, well, they lied, or here's the witness's own words, but that's not what's in the report, or this obfuscation is the word I like, you know, they just mm -hmm. leave important details out so that if someone was to read the uh, the pocketbook of, you know, the Warren Commission report, they would have that conclusion, oh, Lee Oswald must have done it. And yeah. it's farthest from the truth. You know, when you see Lee Oswald say, I'm just a patsy, you go, no, that guy's telling the truth. Now, what really happened? Yeah, you know, I get that too. I do, I get that too, because he says it with such conviction when he says it. And and also another fascinating character in this whole grand jury thing is uh, FBI agent uh, Regis Kennedy, who worked with the FBI guy uh, Warren uh, DeBry, who was close to Oswald when Oswald was in there that summer. And he's on the grand jury to answer a question, really, is that um, in the summer of 63, Jack Ruby went to New Orleans. And New Orleans is a small town for those kind of people that know each other and knows who's in town and who's not in town. And then they ask Kennedy, you know, what's he doing there? What, do you, can you tell us anything about it? And he took the fifth. And what he says really is unbelievable. And he just says it over and over. I am prohibited by Departmental Order Number 32464 by giving any information or material which we, has been acquired by me in the performance of my official duties as best status of special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And he just repeats that over and over. I have to refer to my statement. I refer to my statement. And the grand jury is so frustrated. They say, Mr. Kennedy, you are a crime investigating agency. This is the grand jury. This is the prosecuting office, the DA's office of, of the parish of New Orleans. Why will you not work with them? Will you just, and he just repeats his statement again. It's just really, it's those kinds of things that you say, what? That's the FBI. What? Don't they want to find the truth? Don't they want to know? So it's sad. That's just... And that is the footprints of the crime. They don't want this revealed. Even 60 yeah. years later, 60 yeah. years later, you know, the, uh, the great effort of, of Jim Garrison, at least for, for, like he said, this is not the America I grew up in. You know, like, what the hell's going mm -hmm. on? Yeah. It really is fascinating. It really is. So that so that's it. Yeah. So jfk.boards.net. And that's all my writings over there. What I've been doing for the past 50 years of the things that I've gathered. There's stories about Oswald's rifle and how that's all fake with the purchasing and how he never he never owned a rifle. Or he doesn't even drive a car. And you're going to shoot the president on the day you're going to, you know, you leave the rifle at work, you leave all your money at home. It just doesn't make sense. Even the, the protection, the stories of the police, uh, the, I'm sorry, the president's security that day and making the turns. And you listen to Colonel uh, Fletcher Prouty and what he has to say about how all it's just a setup. It's just so obviously a setup. That's really all I got to say. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. And, um, so we'll, I'll make links to this along with our interview here so that we can get more people who are, are interested to uh, go through your JFK boards and uh, go through this grand jury testimony in particular. Uh, there's other stuff thank there, you. but that's, that's what's of, of, of interest. Yeah, thank you for this. Okay, then before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to bring up? About this that I didn't get to because I'm, I'm no I think yeah no I think we covered it all I do thank you for the time and thank you for you know to to get the word out for me I do appreciate it. we've been doing it for about five years now uh, on the web uh, it's got a good response everywhere okay well you and, should get uh, a boost in traffic you. for you know, a lot of people listening to Black Op Radio so 
good luck and uh, keep me in the loop. It. Email me if anything is new, and I'll be glad to uh, help promote anything you're doing. I appreciate it, Len. Thank you so much, and thank you all, listeners. Uh, thank you. All right. Okay. okay. Good night. Good night. Bye. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. Tonight, we are speaking to Jim DiEugenio from Los Angeles. Hello, Jim. Good evening. Thank you for taking time to talk again about JFK. Your site, Kennedys and King, is a hub for a lot of articles on JFK and Bobby Kennedy and, and like it says, Kennedys and King, uh, formerly Citizens for Truth and the Kennedy assassination, but that's been a few years back. So I usually start off by asking you what is new at your website at kennedysandking.com. Well, first of all, I'm going to be at the Cincinnati Mercantile Library on the 14th. Of November. Yes. Now, Matt Crumpton, a guy who has a website solving JFK and who I cooperated on with this book that Paul Blow is going to come out with, okay, called The Chokeholds. He arranged this for me, and I will bring some of my JFK Revisited books, okay, and I'll be glad to autograph them for you, and uh, you can look up the address, okay, uh, online, the Cincinnati Mercantile Library, which I think is downtown on the 11th floor, okay, of this building. So let's get a neat crowd out there. And hopefully they will make this like an annual thing if we do that. All right. Now you can call there. It's 513-621-0717. And you can look it up online. It's The address is 414 Walnut Street, 11th floor. They've been around for over a century. So that's one thing that's upcoming. In Pittsburgh, of course... There's the Duquesne Conference, which I believe is from the 15th to the 17th. And at that one, I will be speaking, I believe, on Saturday. And that one is going to be, the topic of that is going to be how the death of JFK led to the rise of the neocons. You know, because everybody always says, you know, what does that have to do with today? Well, in this, I'm going to show it has everything to do with today. All right. And I'm going to bring it all the way up to what's going on in the Middle East right now. First, I'm going to show how the death of JFK led to the rise of the neocons. Okay, and I'm going to do it with somebody that no one ever talks about. I don't think I've ever seen his name in any JFK book. Well, I'm not surprised at that. You probably have heard of him. Henry Jackson, the senator from Washington, is more or less the godfather to neocons. And he was a Democrat. So I'm going to start off with how there's always been two polls in the Democratic Party. You know, the the Harry Truman poll and the Dean Acheson poll on one side and the Franklin Roosevelt Cordell Hull, Joseph Davies poll on the other. Joseph Davies was the ambassador to the Soviet Union under FDR and Cordell Hull. And I'm going to show how this migrated through time and how the assassination of JFK paved the way for the rise of the neocon movement into power, all right? So that's what I'm going to be talking about in Pittsburgh. Okay, the Pittsburgh, Andrew Eiler is going to be there. You had him on, right? Yeah. The, uh, the lawyer, yeah. He's going to be there. 
Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting him. Okay, that should be really neat. And Matt Crumpton is going to be there. And they're both contributors to this upcoming book, The Joe Colts. All right. So anyway, that brings you up to date on if you want to see me in a speaking engagement, you know, in any of those two venues. The, uh, the Pittsburgh conference looks like it's going to be really good. You know, there's a lot of uh, big names that are that are going to be there. So, and that's really good for the 60th. There's going to be a salute to Cyril Wecht, I believe, on Friday night. If anybody deserves it, Cyril Wecht deserves it. Okay, so that um, that brings you up to date on my public appearances. As we know, as everyone should know, the 60th is upcoming, and there's I've seen a couple of documentaries for uh, the Parkland Doctors has changed titles, okay, to a different title, uh, which I can't recall right now. But I saw that. I saw the Parkland Doctors when me and Oliver were working and Rob Wilson were working on our documentary. And it's a pretty interesting film. And I don't want to, uh, I don't want to uh, give away, you know, what the whole thing is about. The new title is what the doctors saw, all right? And thanks to Gil Jesus, who's posted a link. It's going to be on Paramount Plus November the 14th. So if you want to see, that's going to be a decent book, okay? Excuse me, a decent uh, documentary. National Geographic is doing one. I'm trying to get Matt Dowdit to, uh, to review that for us. And there's probably going to be a couple of other hit pieces. I have very little doubt that that's going to be the case. Now, to go to Kennedy's and King, let's uh, see. Me and you are like catching up to each other, all right? Because you had Bart Camp on, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, okay. And I reviewed his book, which I think is pretty interesting. Prayer Man, More Than a Fuzzy Picture. And that review was posted about uh, 11 days ago. So I'm glad his book is getting some attention because it should. Now, you also had Paul Abbott on, and we have an article by him about the Garrison Memoranda and the Garrison Folders. And that's an invaluable, a really invaluable contribution to the research community. And you deserve credit for that, and Paul deserves credit for that. Because these files were buried for way too long, all right? In fact, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but in, I think it was 92 or maybe 93, I started getting these files. I think it was 93 from a guy named Peter Villa, who was visiting the National Archives at the time. And this was right about when the review board was starting to make a lot of noise and the National Archives began to declassify stuff even earlier once the JFK Act was passed, which was in 1992. And Peter Vea started sending me stuff. And a lot of this stuff was from the Garrison's files because the House Select Committee, when Jonathan Blackmer was there, he was the liaison to New Orleans at the time, and he had more than one meeting with Garrison, and Garrison gave him a lot of his stuff because Jonathan was 
supportive of a New Orleans inquiry and thought that Garrison had a lot of interesting information, which, of course, he did. All right, this was while, and I have to qualify this, of course, this was while Sprague and Tannenbaum were running the committee. Jonathan was a young lawyer, and he had an open mind about this. So this is how a lot of Garrison's materials got into the HSCA files. It was through Jonathan. Now today, from what I understand, I don't know if Jonathan is still around. He was still around when Joan Mellon wrote her book, but he won't. He did back then when her book came out. She wouldn't. He wouldn't talk to her. He wouldn't talk to Bill Davy. He wouldn't talk to anybody because that experience ended so bad for him. All right, and in fact. I think he got transferred out of New Orleans. In fact, I'm sure he did. And he actually started working on the medical evidence and a little bit on the King's side, if I remember correctly. And so that was more or less it, you know. And so Peter sent me some of the some of the Garrison files. And I read these things at the Chicago conference, I believe, in 1993. And people were very surprised. It had a big impact, and the main reason being is that the so-called leaders of the critical community, Paul Hoke, Peter Scott, Tink Thompson, Russell Stetler, okay, and everywhere from 1969 to when I first appeared in 1993, you know, which is about 24 years, all right, Garrison was frowned upon. And the reason I, I had so many objections to this is that he was frowned upon without anybody looking at his files. <laughs> so, in other words, we were doing what the other side, we always accuse the other side of doing, of not doing the research. Okay. And so these guys, more or less, just joined the MSM. That Garrison was a fool, uh, that he didn't have anything. Worst case scenario, uh, like Dan Moldea that he was being paid off by Carlos Marcello or whatever. Okay, all this garbage, you know, which turned out to be nothing but trash, all right? And so I read a couple of documents, just only a couple. One was about how Garrison's witnesses were being, there's no other way to say this, they were being extorted not to talk under very tangible threats. And they were ter being turned by people like Walter Sheridan. And they were introduced to the other side, people like Irvin Diamond, the lead attorney for Clay Shaw. And they changed their story for Sheridan and went on TV, that terrible NBC special. By the way, I don't know how many people know this, but that NBC special that Sheridan produced, that was originally going to be a two-hour show. And NBC wouldn't put up the money for the two hours. So some of the money went through the CIA station in New York City, was cut out, was a cutout, okay, in order to produce that show, all right? And that's one of the documents that came out of the Garrison investigation. So I'm really glad that you and uh, Paul Abbott have done this service for us all, okay? I mean, it's uh, – to go through a lot of the stuff that Garrison had, you know, is like night and day. You know, if you read about through the MSM – versus the actual raw data, you know, I mean, you see what a hatchet job they did on this guy. And of course they had to, all right, because he was undermining everything they've been talking about. Let us never forget, let us never ever forget 
NBC and CBS put reports on. In the NBC case, it was an hour. In the CBS case, it was two hours. Endorsing the Warren Commission within 24 to 48 hours of the report being issued. I want everybody to really understand that because the Warren report is 888 pages long. Okay. How could you possibly absorb and digest nearly 1,000 pages in that short of a time? And remember, remember, television has to be produced. It's not like me and you doing a live interview. It has to be produced. You have to send people out in the field with cameras. So in other words, they were in the tank for the Warren Commission report before it was ever issued. All right. And they were not going to go ahead and say, we made a huge mistake, okay? The Warren Commission was wrong. JFK was killed by a conspiracy. They weren't going to do that, and they'll never do it, all right? But although, this is what Dan Rather told Tannenbaum. When they were doing a special in 1994, Dan Rather had Bellin and Tannenbaum in Dealey Plaza. And he let Bellin go first, then he let Tannenbaum go. And Tannenbaum just decimated Bellin. So after the cameras were off, Rather put down the microphone and he said to Tannenbaum, you know, we really blew it on the JFK case. Well, no kidding, Dan. Okay, <laughs> no kidding. All right. And this went on, of course, ad infinitum you know, to this very day. They've never, ever been able to go ahead and say that we should not have done that. That was not good journalism. All right, so again, you and Paul Abbott are to be saluted for this service you've done for all this, all of us. Now, you also had Jeff Meeks on, right? Yep. Right. Okay, good. He has an, that's an interesting book. You know, he's an interesting guy because to my knowledge, he's the only journalist in America who has a regular column. Can you believe this? He has a regular column on the JFK case. And so what he did is he put together an anthology, you know, of his best pieces. And I have to say they're pretty good. I mean, the one he did with Dan Hardway and Leslie Weaselman from the House Select Committee, those are almost worth the price of the book. They're that interesting. So I, ho I really hope that, you know, people listen to that show and go ahead and give his book a twirl. All right. Now, James Norwood is a former professor I believe from the University of Minnesota, who I believe today lives in California. I think that's where he was actually born. And he has a new book out. And this this is one you haven't interviewed yet, right? Yeah, that'll be any day now. Yeah, okay. So I read the book, okay? And it's, it's a kind of a original and unique kind of a book. It doesn't really read like a murder mystery, like most books do. It essentially says... The three main players, the way he looks at it, were Khrushchev, Kennedy, and Oswald. And he takes a look at this as the way history was scrubbed and fabricated on all three men. And, you know, this, of course, is true. This, of course, is true because history had to be rewritten. And he makes the case that Khrushchev was a kind of early version, although not nearly as extreme, as Gorbachev was, in that 
he really changed the system because he had seen Stalin up close. And he said things like Stalin had committed criminal violations of the, of the law that would have been punished in any country, except for countries not governed by law at all. Now, I think that's from his famous secret speech of 1956, which was really the a denunciation of Stalin. And Khrushchev had, of course, worked with Stalin, so he got to see him up close. You know, and then Khrushchev added that Stalin was much more in tune with the Russian czars than he was with the ideals of the Bolshevik Revolution, that is Lenin and Trotsky. And he also talked about how Stalin had had disastrous leadership during the early part of the Nazi invasion in World War II. And this, of course, I mean, this, of course, refers to the unexpected breaking of the treaty between Stalin and Hitler, and Hitler then launched an invasion of the Soviet Union, which I believe to this day, to this day, and we're talking about 75 years later, that is the largest land invasion ever. Okay, you had the Germans put something like two and a half to three million men on the Russian front, supported by tanks, heavy artillery, and airplanes. And they just rolled through the Soviet Union at the beginning. And Stalin was stunned. He literally didn't come out of his room at the beginning because he was so shocked at what Hitler had done to him. All right, it was Zhukov, the great general, who had to go ahead and organize a defense of Russia. And so Khrushchev, who understood this, actually brought this up during the secret speech. You know, words of the effect, if it wasn't for Zhukov, Germany would have conquered Russia. All right? All right, and, and so everybody at this, this Kremlin meeting was just shocked at what Khrushchev was actually saying. All right? You know, but Khrushchev didn't go all the way, and so he went ahead and ordered the crushing of Hungary, all right, uh, in 1956. And Jim Norwood says he thinks that this was at the urging of the ambassador to Hungary, Yuri Andropov, who would later run the KGB for 15 years and then very briefly become general secretary. And Khrushchev also admitted that he made a mistake in banning Boris Pasternak's book, Dr. Zhivago. And that turned out to be a really great triumph for the CIA. You know, because if you if you see the movie or you read the book, there really isn't anything in there that's really anti-Moscow, okay, or anti-Soviet. You know, it's really a story about, you know, this guy, you know, who and his romantic life and his struggle through the Russian Revolution and the early days of the communist power, taking power. So it was really kind of stupid, you know, for Khrushchev to do that. So then he goes into Kennedy, and I'm not going to go through, I mean, I think most people are familiar with this, okay, because we've been talking about it on this show, you know, for over a decade. But it's interesting how he brings up 
that the two came into contact by bypassing the people in their administrations during the uh, during the missile crisis. And of course, he parallels Khrushchev's secret speech with Kennedy's so-called peace speech at American University. All right, and he writes then for a brief moment in history between June and November of 1963, there was a genuine opening for rapprochement. And he talks about how Khrushchev immediately suspected that Kennedy had been killed by a right-wing conspiracy when he heard about his, his assassination and that it was an attempt to deep six what they were trying for, that is a U.S.-Soviet detente. And in a very real way, it was Kennedy's assassination that set the stage for Khrushchev's removal and that the Soviet Union really changed for the worse after Khrushchev was deposed. All right, so I'm not going to go through the whole book. I mean, you're going to do that with Jim when he uh, when he appears on your show. But it's a very interesting take, I believe. We've been really kind of fortunate in that most JFK books I don't like, but these last three by Jeff, by Bart, and Jim Norwood, I actually gave uh, positive reviews to. You know, they're actually worth worth getting. All right, now. You know, and that's one thing that when I was going through the book, I thought, Gee, this is going to sound funny that every time we have an author on, we say we like this. You know, you know, it's worth getting. And even if you know some of the stuff or, you know, there's always something you learn. And um, I guess it just goes to the fact that there's several books and there's authors that we don't like and we just ignore those. So if we do decide to have somebody on, it's already been through a little bit of screening that, you know, there's something of value here, even if we agree or disagree on some small points. But generally, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have a guest on or even bother reading the book if I didn't get a recommendation from you or other people, you know, that said, mm-hmm. this is worthwhile, what do you think? And uh, so that's the benefit well, of your uh, reviews. Len, maybe uh, we should pat ourselves on the back. Yeah, maybe right, but I'm just saying that, you know, <laughs> um, when people go to Kennedys and Kings and they look at articles or reviews as well, Right. That's something, you know, unless the book is just atrocious <laughs> and then you've had to tackle some of those. Right. But sometimes it's worth a review of just pointing out how what a piece of crap the thing is. All right. So let's take a look at some of the letters. All right. Since I haven't been on in a while. Uh, Jason Hassler. This is from October the 10th. Oh, happy Halloween, Lynn. Hope you had some candy to dish out. All right. Um, yeah, it's good here <laughs> in Vancouver. <laughs> okay. J- Jim, first off, I want to thank you for answering my previous JFK assassination questions on Black Op Radio and an email. I have come up with a couple of more random questions I was hoping you might be able to answer. One, I just recently came across a YouTube lecture from around 1991 with a guy named Tom Wilson. He apparently worked in the steel industry in the 1980s and invented a photographic computer program machine that could see things the human eye could not. In the video, he shows how the computer can detect images within a photo using a computer in the gray visual spectrum. Then Tom shows the most incredible things I've ever seen about 
the JFK assassination. He basically tries visually to prove very falsehood of the JFK case. JFK autopsy photo of fake, no problem. The computer looked down at the neck photograph and detect the bullet patch. Oswald backyard photo of fake, no problem. The computer looks at the photo and shows where it has been altered and you can see the real person's face. Headshot at 313, no problem. The computer can see inside the photo and go inside JFK's skull and see missing skull or brain. Grassy no shooter, you guessed it, no problem. The computer looks at the photo and can see the shooter with an eagle emblem badge on his chest and he has brown eyes. Yes, even the supercomputer machine that works on a grayscale can determine a person's eye color. I never heard of Tom Wilson, have no idea who he is. Do you know? Well, it's was because he's not alive anymore. All right. Do you know who he was and can you shed any knowledge on his photo computer machine? It sounded so fantastical that I assume it's not legitimate. Look, Tom Wilson was on that um, Nigel Turner series, The Men Who Killed Kennedy. Nigel Turner put, I would say, more of the wrong people on that series than would be humanly possible. Even if you were choosing by random, I don't think you could have done a worse job than Nigel Turner did. And he ended up with the whole William Legit, the, uh, you know, how the body was altered in Dallas that kind of thing. He ended up getting sued and then censured over in London. I don't buy Tom Wilson, and I've taken it on the uh, word of people who know a little bit about pictures and films like Millis and Craner. And uh, Len, who's that guy down in Australia who specializes in the Zapruder film where you had on? He was actually in Vancouver. You had him on in your studio? I'll tell you in a second, yeah. All right, okay. But um, so, yeah, what? I think it was a friend of uh, Greg Burnham's too, right? Yeah, John Costella. Right, that, that's it. Yeah. Okay. And so I read up on Tom through these people. And Costello basically said Tom Wilson was essentially an early version of Photoshop. <laughs> and Millicent said Tom Wilson couldn't find steel in Pittsburgh. Okay. So these are people who I respect their opinions of. Remember, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Question number two. I've always thought there was more to the JFK assassination than the lone gunman theory. My gut tells me Oswald was somehow involved, but I'm not sure of his role or intended role. I'm actually more inclined to think if Oswald killed anyone, he killed Officer Tippett, not JFK. I've wondered if Oswald might have somehow been tricked into bringing a gun into the TSPD building or realized he was double-crossed after the assassination, goes home, gets his gun, and then heads to a safe place. On the way to the safe place, I assume Oswald has started to realize something has gone wrong. Then a policeman tries to stop him. Oswald thinks it's part of the setup. So Oswald takes immediate action. From everything I've read, whoever killed Tippett was a stone-cold killer, fast, accurate, deadly with a four-shot blank uh, execution to the head. For some, re some reason, I just don't see Oswald as a trained, calm, close-quarter killer. I have wondered, does anyone understand how or why Oswald was picked to be the patsy? I have no idea how to how covert or even non-covert plots are planned or executed. 
with your research and knowledge and your opinion, do you have any thoughts as to why Oswald, out of all people to pick, was chosen to be the designated patsy? I just can't imagine someone volunteering to be a patsy. Was he considered a liability? Maybe they thought he was a double agent. I have no idea. Just a thought. And this was a way to get rid of him or set him up. Did he screw up the plot and get caught, which makes him the patsy by failing to escape? Well, that's a heck of a lot of material to go through. I'll try and get through it as quickly as I can. I do not believe that Oswald was part of the plot to kill JFK. I believe he was just what he said. You know, I'm just a patsy. I don't believe he killed Tippett. There's a lot of problems with the Tippett case, which usually does not get as much attention as it should because everybody concentrates on the murder of JFK and then the murder of Oswald. But there's a very serious timing problem that the Warren Commission knew about. How on earth could Oswald have negotiated almost one full mile, you know, in the space of like five or six minutes? I mean, just remember, Roger Bannister had just broken the four million mile, four minute mile mark, I believe, what was it, 1959? And here you have Oswald going from the Beckley Street house to the corner of 10th and Peyton. And what most people believe to be something like five or six minutes, because most people believe that the shooting took place at 108, at the latest 109, you know, and the woman uh, in the boarding house said she saw Oswald standing on the corner across the street at about 103 or 104. Then, of course, there's the problem with the bullets and the shells. You know, they don't match up. Then there's the so-called probative witness, you know, Helen Markham, who I would say was anything except a probative witness, okay? And she ended up being a great liability for the Warren Commission. Even Wesley Liebler said this about her. He didn't want to use her, all right? Just like he didn't want to use Marina and he didn't want to use Brennan. There was some resistance inside the Warren Commission about using these very bad witnesses, you know, but uh, but he commented on his famous... Uh, Liebler Memorandum, I see you've hidden Helen Markham quite adroitly at the bottom of page, whatever it was, but I predict she will not be staying hidden very long. And that's true. The whole first generation of, of critics all spent pages and pages on how bad Helen Markham was. The If you take a look at Joe McBride's book, into the nightmare. And you've had Joe on the show more than once, right? Yeah, several yeah. times. Yeah, yeah, he was even on uh, I-50 Reasons, one of the episodes. Right, okay. His book, Into the Nightmare, I believe is the best book there is on the Tippett case. And he makes a very, very strong case, you know, that it was not Oswald who shot Tippett. Markham was the only one who was supposed to have seen him in the act of shooting Tippett. You know, but for example, like Akilah Clemens, she says that there were two people there. Other people have done some very good work on the Tippett case, like, for example, Bill Simpich and John Armstrong. What, I mean, what was Tippett doing? What was he doing sitting outside that Gloco station, you know, that filling station, looking at the, uh, the viaduct? 
coming over from the Dealey Plaza area. What was he doing there? He stayed there for like eight to ten minutes. What was he doing then going to the top ten record store and just running right to the phone? You know? And and being on the phone. What was he doing pulling over that guy afterwards? You know, and looking in the back seat. You know, all these are indications that Tippett was looking for someone. You know? Was it Oswald? Well, it's something we're never going to know because the Warren Commission report was as bad on Tippett as it was on the Kennedy case. You know, these are all things that uh, Joe McBride goes through in his book. Okay, and so does Simpich and so does Armstrong. And they all are very, very interesting aspects that were buried for a very, very, very long time. You know, what on earth was Oswald's wallet doing at the scene of the crime? What was Oswald's wallet doing at 10th and Payton? Okay, and did the guy have four wallets? Because according to the Dallas police, they took one off of him when he was in the car. And then there was another one, you know, uh, at the Payne household. And I think there was a fourth one at his rooming. So, you know, what kind of a person carries around that many wallets? You know, so the Tippett case is... I believe uh, another non sequitur. Well, you know, believe- if they didn't have that footage, the newsreel footage that inadvertently captured uh, the guy handing it to a policeman and looking at the wallet at the at the tip of shooting, you wouldn't believe it. You just wouldn't believe it. But you yes. go, well, there it is. So the fix is in already. Yes, that's an, a remarkable piece of film, by the way. And if anybody's listening who hasn't seen it, you really should. All right. You really should t- take a look at it. All right. In your opinion, how integral was Oswald to the plot? For example, if Oswald didn't make it to work that day, does the Oswald rifle end up on the sixth floor of the TSBD? Let's say Leslie Fraser's car doesn't start that morning, or Oswald and Fraser got into a car accident on the way to work. And neither of them make it to work. Does the assassination still happen? And do they do it without the patsy? In your opinion, does the plot absolutely need Oswald to be in the TSBD when JFK goes by to make it work? Thanks in advance for your help. Look, how many times did they try and kill Kennedy? In just this time frame. We went over them, some of them in in, uh, in Oliver Stone's film. There was one in Tampa, you know, that was a very, very interesting case because you had Gilberto Lopez, who had some resemblance. He had been at FPCC meetings. He flew to Mexico City and then flew to Cuba afterwards. Right. right, and and these are just the ones that we know of. Right, right? exactly. So, so there could be ones that we don't know. There could have been two or three per city. Um, mm-hmm. The most blatant is in Chicago. Right, Thomas Valet, Thomas Arthur Valet. Okay, there's a guy who had so many resemblances to Oswald, it was almost uncanny. Okay, and try and find anything 
about Thomas Arthur Valet in the Warren Commission volumes. You know, I think you're going to be unsuccessful. If it wasn't for Edwin Black, you know, and his milestone article that he wrote by himself, you know, for his independent journal, you know, we might have never heard of Thomas Arthur Valet. Yeah, the you know, Chicago but, plot, I have a link to that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, in the very unlikely probability, and I'm saying it's very unlikely, that Oswald wouldn't have been there, I think they would have had somebody else lined up. You know, let's put it this way. Kennedy was not getting out of 1963 alive. Okay? Period. End of story. They were going to get rid of him, all right, before the new year. And they had all these other, you know, patsies who resembled Oswald, okay, lined up. Right. Even and, Los and like, Angeles, right? And, well, yeah, right. The Von Marlowe thing. Yeah. Okay. And like you just said, Len, these are the only ones that, that we know about. Okay. Because they're really, you know, and I always have to stress this. There has never really been an investigation of the JFK case. All right. I mean, the ARB was very good at declassifying documents, at least some of them. We never got all of them. All right. But they only did one real investigation, and that was into the medical evidence. All right. We know what happened with the House Select Committee. We know what they did to Jim Garrison. Okay. So there's never really been a real investigation of the John F. Kennedy assassination. And so we're going just through tidbits that we have, you know, which the research community, which has put up a very heroic battle here, you know, has been able to uncover. So I believe if Oswald doesn't show up, I believe they just delay it to somewhere else, you know, a little bit later. You know, like I said, Kennedy was not getting out of 1963 alive. I think it's very interesting that he was offered uh, that job at the airport. Yes. That if they, if yes. he was given the job there, that uh, Kennedy may have been shot get, walking off the plane there, right there, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and there's so so uh, it's um, you know, it, I don't want to say pointless, but I think it's just such speculation that I don't know. I, I can't give it any more time, you know. Like, well, what if? What if? You know. Um, you know, what if they did a real investigation and told the people? I mean, uh, when you heard uh, an interview with uh, Vladimir Putin saying, well, uh, you know, the American um, uh, security state killed Kennedy, right? Right, he did say that. Yeah, right, on, ca- on camera, right? You know, so, I mean, uh-huh. other people must know. And uh, I think uh, in the latest book by Norwood, he, he talks about some of the people who, like uh, de Gaulle or other people were quite, sure right away that you know something's really rotten and they have their intelligence agencies brief them and uh you know i think even uh, from the speeches that castro made nobody really in the know thought that lee oswald did it and you know like he said he was a patsy and so um would there have been other people that may have been friends with george de shelter this or that or they had other secondary plots lined up it's uh, quite possible, right? It, it's just, um, you know, like you said, time was running out and they were getting, uh, you know, they had planned this, they had planned that and planned that and and um, and I think they called the heavy hitters in for Dallas. 
Yeah, I think Jim talks about France, Cuba, and Russia, that their intelligence services did not buy the official story. Okay. And, and may they, have had moles in American right. intelligence that, that, you know, leaked information, right? Yes. Yes, of course. All right. Now, J Jason then added this. For whatever it's worth, my dad developed a rare cancer on his vocal cord back in the 1980s. And over the years, he had at least 10 tracheotomy tubes. The incision is so small that they literally just pull the tracheotomy tube out and the wound heals on its own. They don't even need stent strips or suture. After 30 plus years, you can hardly notice his scars. So when I see JFK's autopsy photo with the supposed tracheotomy incision, I know that that's total BS. That literally looks like someone tried to perform a tracheotomy with a dull hacksaw. Okay. Did the autopsy physicians ever explain how a perfectly clean minor incision turned into a massive wound on the neck? I think the answer to that question is no. Did the physician claim JFK's neck arrived in that condition, or did they admit it was enlarged because they tried to dissect the wound? They never tried to dissect the wound, so that couldn't have been it. Do you have any information on the documentary concerning the Zapruder film and analysis on the blacked out portion on JFK's posterior portion of his skull? I keep reading that there's something out there I think we're, it's, it's called alteration for the life of me. I can't seem to find out how to view the documentary. Okay, that's, I think you're talking about Sidney Wilkinson's film. And I don't think that's out yet because I probably would have heard of it by now. But there is a French film on the Zapruder film, Possible Alteration, that's being viewed on the internet right now. And I think that's all you'll have to do is Google you know, French documentary on Zapruder film alteration. And I, I've seen that in the last couple of days, but I haven't actually watched a documentary yet. So the French one is out. I don't think the English one is out yet, but I will let everybody know when it is. All right. Okay, October the 12th. Steve McMillan, thanks for all your work. And JFK Revisited was brilliant. Quick question for you, if you don't mind. Back in the mid-1990s, I got an argument with a friend about an article he showed me that claimed the reason JFK's brain disappeared from the National Archives was because someone had stolen it as a souvenir. Do you know where I can find this ridiculous article or who wrote it? That theory sounds so ridiculous, it's absurd. Well, the answer to that question is no, I don't, because I never came across that. And I agree with you, it's kind of preposterous to think of it. The ARB surfaced a couple of witnesses who believed that Kennedy's brain was at the AFIP, the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. And I wrote about this on Kennedy's and King called The Mystery of JFK's Brain Deepens. And I really didn't know about this evidence, certainly not the two witnesses. And I told up Dave Montague who was an investigator for the House Select Committee. And uh, he told me about it after I'd been originally tipped off by Malcolm Blunt. They found two people 
who said, one of them I think was named Moskowitz. The other one had a really difficult last name to pronounce. It began with a V. But if you find my article, you'll be able to go ahead and read about it. And they said that Kennedy's brain was at the AFIP. That's a completely different building than either Bethesda and a different story because it was supposed to have been given to Berkeley. And Berkeley was then supposed to have gotten it interred with JFK's body. It's very, very interesting. See, the, the, this whole thing about the mystery of Kennedy's brain, I truly believe, first of all, I'm really glad that Oliver decided to go along with me and make that a main focus of his JFK Revisited and JFK Destiny Betrayed. And I, I'm really glad he did that because we were the first ones to actually put that out there you know, with so many authorities and so many experts on it. You know, I'm so glad we got Mike Chesser, you know, because he's a neurologist from Little Rock. I mean, who's more qualified to talk about this than a neurologist? Because, first of all, it was covered up for so long. This whole mystery about Kennedy's brain was covered up for so long. It wasn't until the ARB and Doug Horn wrote his memorandum about the two autopsies, okay, the two events, the two brain examinations. It wasn't until then that we finally really got onto this whole mystery. You know, there, there might have been a previous article or two by maybe Dave Mantic or Cyril Wecht might have mentioned it, you know, or Gary Aguilar. But, but the Jeremy Gunn and, and Doug Horn really brought it to the forefront in a very real and tangible way. You know, I just don't believe today that anybody who knows the evidence can actually say that those illustrations and those pictures represent Kennedy's brain. There's just too many tiers of evidence that would dictate to be the opposite. It cannot be Kennedy's brain. There's too many witnesses who saw a severely damaged brain with as much as one third of the brain gone. There's John Stringer, who said before the ARB that, no, I don't think I took those pictures. You know, it's a different film and it's a different technique, you know? Uh, and then there's the brain weight. I mean, the average brain, I believe, was something like 1,340 grams. Kennedy's brain was weighed in, I think, a day or two later at a significant weight above that. Yeah, like, like 50, yeah, 1,500. 1,500 grams. I mean, how can that be with all the damage? And by the way, it's not just eyewitness testimony. It's the Zapruder film and the pictures taken in that day of the car. You know, you get this tremendous head explosion. Then you get Jackie crawling out the back of the car because part of his brain went backwards, you know? And then you have the pictures of the back seat of the car. Then you have the motorcyclist on the left side, Kit with Kennedy's brain. He said so hard, I thought I was hit for the bullet. He didn't even know he had some of it in his mouth. Okay. So in my, in my honest opinion today, I really truly believe that this is one of the keys to the whole case. And the fact that the Warren Commission 
more or less ignored it. The fact that the House Select Committee, again, more or less ignored it because they buried Robert Knudsen's, his deposition, okay, who is, as you saw in our film, he might have been the guy who took the pictures that Stringer did not take. So this is very powerful evidence, okay, I believe that, that the magnitude of the cover-up matched the magnitude of the crime, all right? Okay, Len, so let me see if there's any, do I have any more? No, those, those are the letters for tonight. Okay, all right, we'll make links to where you'll be speaking and urge people to go to kennedysandking.com to check out new articles and reviews. You know, mostly the book reviews, that people are always thanking me and you, saying thanks for steering me clear of that one or thank you for recommending one, right? Mm-hmm. And um, all right. Well, um, it's getting near, and I notice a few people are are uh, got articles mentioning the sixty years, and it it makes me think that uh, fifty reasons for fifty years. I think that stands the test of time. That in twenty thirteen, that uh, me and Jeff Carter had put together a good chunk of of reasons why not to believe it, and there was an article um, sixty for sixty years at your site there. Uh, yeah, that's Johnny Karen's. Yeah, and we're we're gonna finish it up in about two or three weeks. All right, because that's going to be a six-parter. And uh, your guy, Raul, is working on it. Okay, right. and we're going to try and have it up in about a, in a couple more weeks. It's very long. It was a, when he submitted it to me, it was like 147 pages. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't know it was going to be that long. Okay, but that's not very easy to edit, and it's not very easy to HTML. So it's taken us a while to do it. But it will... It, 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 it will be up. Okay. And then, by the way, and your series, see, your series was a TV production. Your series was, you actually had videography. Yeah. Okay. And you had animation. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you had you being the narrator. Okay. That's what made that such a distinctive achievement. You and Jeff spent a lot of time and energy and skill, you know, putting that thing together. And you had some very good guests. You had Dan Hardway, all right, for one. Joe McBride for another. You know, you had a whole series of, uh, didn't you have Groden on? Oliver Stone as well. Oliver Stone, okay, yeah. uh, you know, Fletcher Prouty, and, yes. um, you know, uh, John Judge. I mean, I had already been doing Black Op Radio for a while, so I had all the contacts. So mm-hmm. that's when, when Jeff, um, when he originally um you know, emailed me and asked about it. I turned him down kind of. I said, no, this is, you know, too much work. But then I think something happened with Gary Mack and he was out there yapping away and I thought, okay, forget it. This, he, he's got my attention now. And uh, that's why I was kind of a little mad. I thought, I always thought when I was going to do my intro, okay, this one's going to Gary Mack. I don't care who else sees it. I want <laughs> him to know that he's a gutless liar. <laughs> and uh, um, I might have come across a little loud and mad. But that's how it was. And, um, you know, I'm just so happy that uh, Oliver Stone uh, was on. We talked about him on episode, I think, 45. Uh, for every now and then, it gets bumped by YouTube, and then mysteriously it shows back up again. But, mm-hmm. um, um, yeah, and, and yourself, and just everybody, every topic. And I think the charm of it was they were short enough. That, that we said, look, at this is for short attention span, people that might not know an awful lot. we got to keep it to three to five minutes tops. 
And we kind of stuck to that with the exception of um, Dan Hardway. When he agreed to it, he said, listen, I don't want you to twist anything, so I'm going to write down what I want to say, and I want you to read that over and agree to it. And we looked at it, and it was, you know, even new information for us, you know, and, and uh, so it was, I think, 11 minutes. But I think by the time episode 44, we were just glad to have him on, you know, and say, okay, sure. And, um, you know, there was uh, just, just um, of, you know, if you if you watch that, then you'd be interested in Black Op Radio and you'd get the hour, the two-hour interviews that we did with people. But this was just, you know, um, you know, the gun, how did they get the bullet, you know, Commission Exhibit 399, you know, and this and that, right? So mm. I can't think of any, I mean, um, I was happy to have Jesse Ventura on too. And, and he was right. happy to right. talk about the rifle in it because he actually fired one for his mm-hmm. TV show, right? Um, Conspiracy Theory. And um, so, yeah. It was, uh, uh, I think, I think we did a good job. And then, of course, years later, your job was Oliver Stone, which is like four hours. And it just, you know, it's like what we knew 30 years ago. Now here's what we know today. Mm-hmm. And it's even more. And they're a little more in depth, right? So, but um, that was the motivation, uh, short attention span, three to five minute clips. Right. All right, so that was 50. That was 2013. We're at 2023, 60. And like you mentioned, there will be um, a tribute to Cyril Wecht, right? That, uh, yeah, at the Pittsburgh conference. Yeah. Okay. And and that should be very interesting. Yeah. Uh, Johnny's going to be at the Dallas conference. Okay. We already have the first two parts of his series up. Okay. And, and we're working on it right now to get three and four. And then we'll have five and six. Yeah. Okay. All right. But that's, okay, a, you man. know, also it's, you know, I guess it jogged my memory was when you look at any one of these topics, you could talk for half an hour at easily on any one of the things. And how do you just get it down to a quick. Len, you, you could talk for four hours on Mexico City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you end up with, with the, you know, a Nick one conclusion would be, well, he never went there. I mean, uh, those two Australian girls that signed, and you look at the writing, the handwriting on the, you know, it's all the same hand, you know, the baggage things. That, I mean, yeah, it just goes on and on. And thanks to people like, um, say, John Armstrong, that have gone through and dug up all this stuff. That's why uh, it, it, it's uh, it's really appalling what the American government did, that they removed someone, I think, so important to the world, and then they just blamed it on Lee Oswald and you know history books oh that was another thing in James um, Norwood's book that impressed me he went through some of the different history books that you know shows here's here's what um, um, I, I can't think of I'll just say Encyclopedia Britannica but you know it says you know all this fallacy right it reminds me Paul Blow originally got into it by doing that and saying yeah, I, yeah. he was appalled at what what people are parroting as fact, when we just know so much more. Yep. It's well, a yes, especially today. Yeah. All right. Thank you again, Jim, for taking time tonight. Okay. Have a good night. All right. We'll bye keep bye. in touch. Okay, bye.